this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus, no matter what you're going through today. If we're going to learn to think like Jesus, it's probably helpful for us to know who Jesus is. Now, I'm just going to prepare you. This is kind of a long one. Yeah, it's a longer sermon than I normally preach. But if we're going to think like Jesus, then we need to know who he is. So who does Jesus claim to be? And who do people around him identify him as? Let's look deeply into the Gospel of Mark to find out. I wonder what people thought of Jesus when they first saw him. You ever think about that? What must they have thought of Jesus at first? I mean, this guy was literally born in a barn, okay? He, he was raised in a backwater little redneck hick town in the mountains. That means he probably spoke with a redneck accent. Am I right? I mean, he probably did. He probably did. Yes, my people. <laughs> He was born in a peasant family. He had nothing. No credentials by birth. He just helped his dad out in his carpentry business, and we know he lost his dad early. We don't know when. Sometime between 12 and adulthood, he lost his dad. He just kind of came into the world with little or nothing. I'm, I'm talking about that little nothing town. I mean, it was a little backwoods up in the mountains town off the beaten path. Still is today. I mean, it's still kind of in the middle of nowhere, very isolated. You don't, you don't travel through Nazareth when you're going anywhere. If you're, if you're in town, you can go up the mountain on the outside of town, and you can look over the ridge, and you can see down below. You can look out. You can see the Sea of Galilee off in the distance. And down at the base of the hill beneath you, you can see the, the road going by, that big central road. That's the road everybody used. It was the road that 1,800 or so years earlier, those slave traders carried Joseph to Egypt on that road. About 300 years before Jesus, Alexander the Great and his armies marched down that road that road that's where all the activity is you could look down there at any time during Jesus's life I'm sure and see the the caravans of the silk and spice traders going by or the cohorts of soldiers the road led to the ends of the Roman Empire it was called the way of the south or the road of the sea it's a very 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 important road but Nazareth didn't even have an exit ramp you know, Nazareth is isolated up over the hills. You couldn't really get there from the road. Nazareth is a little bitty nothing town. Didn't even have a Waffle House, okay? Just a little bitty nothing town, and that's where Jesus grew up. Such a little insignificant nothing that when Philip meets Jesus for the first time, he goes and finds Nathaniel, and he's like, hey, 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 I found this guy, this guy, he's an amazing teacher, you gotta come hear him, it's this Jesus from Nazareth, and you know Nathaniel's response, Nazareth, exclaimed Nathaniel in John 1, can anything good come from Nazareth? 
Yeah, Jesus grew up nowhere. In fact, first blank on your page, if you're following along, Jesus should have been a nobody. Jesus should have been a nobody because he was nothing. So how can this nobody go from Nazareth, of all places, to being the most important historical figure of all time? How can this nobody be the focal point of so much literature and art and culture? How can, how can this little bitty nothing man from this little bitty nothing town divide time? Even if you're a pagan and don't know Jesus, whenever you say the date, you're expressing Jesus because it's his life that defines the difference between B.C. and A.D. So how can this guy go from nothing to being Jesus of Nazareth that we know today? Last week, I started this message series about thinking like Jesus. And the goal of this series is to help us know him better. Man, you guys really liked that message last week. I have gotten more response this week about that message, I think, than any other. Wow, I even got a little applause from Mark Rodriguez, who feels sorry for me all the time. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was a great, I really encourage you guys, if you missed that introductory foundational message, I really encourage you to go back and check that out, uh, because it's the one that kind of sets the whole concept and the idea of what it means to think like Jesus you got to kind of get that to get the rest of it. So I'd encourage you to go on our website at theorchard.life and get that message. It's a short one. It's only about, well, it's probably about 45 minutes long. It's a short message uh, that you can get from last week about thinking like Jesus, about making that jump to being able to think like Jesus. And that brings us back to this question. How can this nobody, how can this nobody go to being the somebody that we all order our lives around. We know Jesus was a human being for sure, right? We see a lot of human attributes in the person of Jesus. You know, some people have postulated that he was just like a, a figment of some people's imagination or a ghost or a projection of God, and he wasn't a real person. But we know Jesus was a real person. I mean, he was born, and he grew. You know, he would get tired and hungry so he would eat and he would sleep he would grow weak at times you see him get angry sometimes right you, you see him get really frustrated with the disciples you just can't figure it out you know and he would be really snarky. Frankly, he'd be really snarky with the Pharisees. I mean, you really see some human come out in Jesus when he was talking to them. And boy, did he get detested with the money changers in the temple. Am I right? Yeah, we really see a lot of human attributes in Jesus. But I think the thing that made him the most human was I think he just loved being with people. You know, I think he just, every time you see him, he's with people. He's always right down in the thick of it with everybody, right? The religious leaders hated this about Jesus. They were always accusing him of being at the wrong parties with the wrong people. Am I right? Yeah. But he loved it. He loved it. 
right? I mean, I think they went out of their way to invite Jesus to the party all the time because I think Jesus told the best jokes. I really do. I think Jesus told the best. I mean, really, seriously, if you're going to be a comedian, wouldn't it be good to be a supernatural, divine comedian? I think he told the best jokes. I think he was the, literally the life of the party. You know, we miss, we miss his jokes all the time. You know, Jesus is talking to the people while he's teaching, and he says stuff like, you know, it's easier for a rich man to get to heaven than for a camel to go through what? Eye of a needle. Now, for me and you, we think, oh, how deep that is very spiritual but everybody around him heard him tell a joke just then because they knew what the eye of the needle was it was a specific gate and you know you can't get a camel through it and it would have been funny they would have laughed out loud Jesus made people laugh all the time all the time and that's why I think they loved having him at their parties his first miracle was where it was at a party it was at a big party a multi-day long party and Jesus is the one that brought the wine am I right in the last service, I was like, Jesus brought the wine. And somebody was like, woo in the back. I'm like, dude, <laughs> you're wooing about the wrong thing here. Talk about Jesus saving your eternal soul. Nothing, but Jesus got the wine. Woo! You know, yeah. <laughs> he loved being with people. You see him loving on the rejected woman at the well. You see him showing compassion to the woman caught in adultery, lifting her up, right? You see him with those people who have leprosy that no one can get around, no one can be near, and he touches them. I think Jesus is so powerful, he ain't got to touch anybody to do anything. Yet when the blind people come, he does stuff. He does crazy stuff. He gets dirt and he spits in it and he rubs it and he puts it on the guy's eyes I think just to just to just make it real he loved being around people he was always with people always touching people Jesus loved people you especially see him moved when his close friend Lazarus passes away right and he waits and waits and doesn't go to Lazarus' deathbed until it's too late. Lazarus dies. And he finally goes, and when he arrives, everybody's mourning and crying. It's fresh, it's raw, it hurts. Jesus comes up to Mary, and in John eleven thirty three, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her were also weeping, he was deeply Moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. I think Jesus was passionate and compassionate about people. But Lazarus didn't stay dead long because Jesus showed up. Right? Zacchaeus didn't stay up in the tree because Jesus showed up. I think Jesus was intrigued by Zacchaeus. That dude climbed in a tree just to see me. Come on, I'm coming to your house. <laughs> Jesus loved people. I think the bottom line is the next blank on your page. Jesus is fully human. If you want to know who Jesus is, Jesus is 100% human. Of course, we knew he would be, right? I mean, the prophecies all said there would be a man. 
a chosen Messiah, a deliverer, a redeemer. All the way back, even the very, very first vague prophecy about the coming deliverer. Before anyone knew anything about God, the very, very first promise comes at the fall, right? Where God is cursing the snake. And he's speaking to the snake. And here's what he says. He says, I will cause... Genesis 3, I'll cause hostility between you, snake, and the woman, and between your baby snakes and the woman's children. He, a child of the woman, will strike your head. He will crush you, and you will strike his heel. That's the first promise. It's vague. It's nonspecific, but it's the first hint that God will send a deliverer some man to deliver us. I think my favorite gospel is the gospel according to Mark. I love it because it's for the ADD readers. So Mark is the shortest gospel. It's the yeah, most incomplete gospel. It really just covers from Jesus' baptism at the beginning of his ministry until his resurrection and nothing else. And it goes quickly. I mean, it goes quickly. It covers the whole thing. In fact, Mark's key word is the word immediately because Jesus is over here doing something then immediately they're over here then immediately this happens then immediately that happens I mean it just goes you can't be ADD and and get lost in Mark he's always moving and so I like Mark because Mark gives us a tour of Jesus's life really really succinctly and Mark launches us right into the ministry of Jesus at the very beginning of his narrative (coughs) Mark shows us what Jesus excuse me is all about (coughs) So Jesus begins his ministry by being baptized, then going into the wilderness and being tempted. He returns 40 days later, and for Mark, the first words to come out of Jesus' mouth are these words. Mark 1, 15. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. This is Jesus' thesis statement. For Mark, this is, this is what Jesus is all about. In fact, this is his catchphrase right here. Jesus is always talking about the kingdom of God. Every time his mouth is open, he's saying the kingdom of God is this. The kingdom of God is like, you want to know what the kingdom of God is? You're permitted to know about the kingdom of God, but not everybody is permitted to know about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like. And he's always describing the kingdom of God. He goes from town to town to town, all across Galilee, proclaiming the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. That's what Jesus is all about. For example, in Mark 4, Jesus says, how can I describe the kingdom of God? What story should I use to illustrate it? It's like a mustard seed planted in the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of all garden plants. It grows long branches and birds can make nests in its shade. He's describing the kingdom. And he's saying, it may seem small, it may seem insignificant, it may seem like something that doesn't matter much, but dude, before you know it, it will grow. It'll take over your life and it's big enough for everyone. Kingdom of God is big enough for everyone. Big enough for you. Oh, thank you, honey. Big enough for your relatives. Big enough for the people that you think are lost and hopeless. But it's big enough 
That's what the kingdom is all about. So Jesus is always talking about the kingdom of God. And while he's doing that, he's also doing this crazy ministry. I mean, if you know anything about the ministry of Jesus, you know that he's preaching. And what else is he doing? Okay, miracles, Christians. He's doing miracles. <laughs> he, he, he's always preaching the kingdom of God, kingdom of God, miracle, miracle, miracle. Kingdom of God, kingdom of God, miracle, miracle, miracle. And what kinds of miracles are they? Well, he's healing people. He's healing people all the time. He's always going. Everywhere he's going, he's healing people. In fact, Mark shows us how Jesus' teaching and healing ministry really explodes at Simon Peter's house. His mother-in-law is sick, and Jesus has been teaching, 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 and it's, you know, good and all. We like Jesus teaching. He teaches good. He's a good teacher. <laughs> Thanks. Learned something about the kingdom today. And great. But then one late afternoon, while Peter's mother-in-law is sick, Jesus is like, you know, be healed. And this throws everybody a curveball. They're like, oh, he does that too? He's not just talking about the kingdom of God. He's also healing people. Well, if he can heal her, maybe he can heal my mom. Maybe he can heal my dying child. Maybe he can fix this problem I've got. I walk with this limp or I, or I can't see out of this one eye. Maybe he can do that. And so people start coming to Jesus and they just start coming in droves, crowds. They pack into Capernaum from all over. I mean, the, block, the line to get to Jesus wraps around the block multiple times and Jesus is just healing, 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 teaching, teaching, healing, healing, kingdom of God, healing, healing, right? And it just goes on and on so much that Jesus gets crazy with it, right? I mean, they're just, there's so much ministry work to be done. He and his disciples, they, they don't get any rest. At one point, Jesus' mom comes along, and she tells everybody, look, he's crazy. He's cr we need to come, come with me, Jesus. Come on, you need to lie down for a while, Jesus. You've lost your mind. He's working so much to minister to so many. And it's not just healing people. What else is he doing? He's healing, teaching, but what else is he doing? He is delivering people from demonic oppression, isn't he? He is casting out demons, right? So it's kingdom of God, kingdom of God, healing, healing, demons, demons. That's the way it goes. Kingdom of God, kingdom of God, healing, healing, demons, demons. That's sort of the ministry of Jesus. And he goes all around town, shows up in your town. Sorry, shows up. He's, he's there in your town up in the north in the Galilee area. Shows up in your town, puts up his big banner with his catchphrase, Kingdom of God Ministries, right? Preaching about the kingdom, healing, healing, and casting out demons. This buildup of ministry happens through the book of Mark. And you see it building to bigger and bigger levels. It finally gets so crazy that the stories begin to overlap, right? Mark's writing, and he's trying to tell the story about this guy who comes to Jesus amidst all the crazy crowd and says, hey, my daughter's dying, and I hope you can save her. Can you please save her? And Jesus is like, take me to her. So they try to work their way through the crowd. It's a crazy, insane, you know, they're all pressing in. They want Jesus. They've been traveling to get to him. They've been bringing their sick. They've been, they've been tearing up rooftops to get to him right and so this crazy crowd is just trying to get through the crowd and there's this one woman in the crowd who knows that she's not going to get attention from Jesus too many people if she can just touch she just touches 
his robe, just touch his robe, right? She can just reach out and touch him as he grows by. Maybe, maybe I'll be healed. She had been bleeding for years and years, nonstop. And sure enough, she's able to kind of work her way in. And as Jesus is going by, she just reaches out and touches his robe. And Jesus, in the middle of the crowd, is like, okay, hold on. Who touched me just now? And the disciples are like, what, are you kidding me? We're, we're trying to work our way through this massive crowd, and everybody's touching you, Jesus. What are you talking about? They stop everything. Jesus has, for some reason, got to figure out who it is that touched him. Power went from him into somebody else, and he gets to have an encounter with this woman. He gets to talk to her, tell her that her faith has made her whole, but he misses his opportunity with the dying girl. She dies before he can get there. And he, of course, arrives at the house, and everybody's crying and wailing, and this poor girl is dead. And he says, hey, don't, don't worry. Trust God. She's going to be okay. And he goes in, and he looks at her, and he, you know what he says? He speaks this amazing thing to her. He looks at her, dead and cold on the bed. And the word of God for this girl is, get up and she did she got up and she walked around and you can imagine how happy everybody was because she responded to the word of Jesus so so he's he's doing all this it's all this crazy insane ministry but something weird's happening if you pay close attention while you're reading Mark you'll see Jesus doing all these things teaching teaching healing healing demons demons but he never really identifies exactly who he is. You know, it says Kingdom of God Ministries on the banner, but he didn't have a name tag that says, Hello, I am Son of God, you know? He didn't have that. He just, he's just kind of not saying who he is exactly. In fact, it's even, if you're, if you're paying attention in Mark, it's even one step further. He's healing these people. Like, like there's this blind guy um, that he heals. He gives the guy his sight. He gives a blind guy his sight. So the blind guy can see all of a sudden, changes his life completely. Blind guy's like, whoo, I can see. And Jesus is like, Shh, don't tell anyone. You're like, what? you think people won't notice? Really? I mean, I've been walking with a cane and helping. And you think, I, you know, I'm now I'm going to be strolling down the street. What you think people won't know? Everybody knows about Jesus already. You mean be quiet? He heals lepers. He's like, okay, sh 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 don't, don't go home and tell anybody about this. Just keep it, sh keep it on the down low. Me and you, okay? Me and you. What's he doing? What, what is he trying to? Everybody, people have been coming from everywhere to see him, but he's like, mm, keep, it, keep it quiet. What's he doing? In fact, when you watch him casting out demons in this early part of his ministry, you see him time and again forbidding them to speak. Now, if I'm just a casual reader, I'm going to say, of course he didn't want him to speak because, you know, nobody wants to hear what a demon has to say. Go and say some ugly, nasty, gross stuff, right? They're probably angry. Jesus just cast them out of their home. Now they're homeless and they're, they're ticked, Okay. But that's not what Mark tells us. Mark says he forbade them to speak because they knew who he was. 
Well, to me, I'm thinking if my thesis statement is the kingdom of God is near, I'm going to want to make sure everybody knows how to have access to the kingdom of God. Right? Because we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through him. So why is he trying to keep it quiet? What's he trying to do here? What's the method of Jesus' madness? Why is he doing this? I think as you're reading through and you're seeing, keep it quiet, keep it quiet, don't speak, keep it quiet, keep it quiet, don't speak, kingdom of God, kingdom of God, healing, healing, demons. I think what you're seeing is Jesus is in the process of showing, not telling. He's in the process of demonstrating who he is so that you can see clearly who he really is and what he's all about, but he's not giving away all the answers. He wants you to, get this, he wants you to think. He wants you to be able to see what he's doing and think like Jesus. He's showing, not telling. And as if you can't see clearly enough with all of the teaching, teaching, healing, healing, demons, demons, if you can't see that clearly enough, then it gets later in his ministry, it gets right up almost to the midpoint of the Gospel of Mark. 16 chapters, it gets right up to chapters 6, 7, and 8. Then all of a sudden his ministry explodes even more. Now all of a sudden the miracles that Jesus is doing, they take on a whole new flavor. Because now all of a sudden there's this sequence of events that happen to Jesus and the disciples that nobody could have believed up to this point. So Jesus is doing what he always does, teaching, 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 healing, healing, demons, demons. And the people are just, they love him, they're crowded in around him, they're not leaving him. They're out in the countryside. And before you know it, it's late in the day. The McDonald's closes. You know, uh, the, the Mexican restaurant, they're, they're closed down. Everybody closes down. And the disciples come to Jesus. They're like, hey, uh, it's getting late. And uh, nobody packed a lunch. So you better send these people home fast because they're going to need to get home to eat. And Jesus is like, we got this, boys. We got this. What you got to work with? And they're like, well, uh, I don't know. Nothing, nothing. We, I mean, we're, we don't really know. We haven't done the research. We just know we didn't pack a lunch, Jesus. So we're thinking about us. He's like, just figure it out. So they come up with, you know, nothing. There's thousands of people there, and they come up with, you know, a, a few fish and a few loaves of bread. Practically Nothing. Jesus like, got this. He prays, breaks the bread, and they start passing out. And Jesus is able to make the fish and the bread go around to everybody. And everybody gets full. Jesus feeds 5,000 people miraculously. What just happened? Everybody's stunned at this. Nobody can imagine and understand. Not only that, but when, they, when they're done eating and they're full, they gotta clean everything up, right? So they go around and collect the food and what's left over? Baskets and baskets and baskets of food are left over. Jesus' miracle is that good. It's enough to overflow. Is that right in your life? Is the work of Jesus in your life good enough to overflow? 
Are there leftovers from what he's done? I mean, isn't, isn't the miracle, the work in G, of Jesus in your life good enough to just bubble over and expand out to everyone else? Good grief. Okay, I gotta get back on track. I'm off track. So he does this. He does the whole feeding of, the, of all the people and then you probably know what happens next. The disciples are traveling, going across the water, the Sea of Galilee. And they're out there on the boat with Jesus. He's tired from a long day of doing ministry. He's in the boat. What's he doing? He's sleeping in the boat. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, a storm comes along. Storm comes up, starts blowing clouds, lightning, thunder, waves, uh, rain, everything. And they're all panicking. I mean, the boat's getting knocked all around. They don't know what to do. They're panicking. They're throwing stuff overboard. What are we going to do? Finally, somebody has the thought, well, let's wake up Jesus. See, because they're all panicking. He's sleeping away. And they're like, what are you doing sleeping? We're all about to die. And Jesus stands up in the boat. And again, he speaks this deep, deep truth from God. Verily, verily, I saith unto thee. No, he doesn't say that. You know what he says? He says, shut up. That's, I mean, I'm sorry if I offend you, but that's what he says. He just says, shut up. And guess what happens? The storm shuts it up. The clouds go away. The rain stops, lightning and thunder over, and the sea like glass all of a sudden. And the disciples don't know what to think. The scripture tells us that they were utterly astounded that Jesus would do this. They go across, they do some more ministry. They come back across later on. And there's the same scenario again. There's another crowd. If you're reading in Mark, there's another crowd. Jesus does the same miracle again with more loaves. No fish this time, but loaves. Feeds everybody and there's stuff left over. And the disciples are like, what is happening here? We've gone from healing, healing, demons, demons, to now we're, we're feeding everyone. We're feeding the world. Jesus tired again. He's like, okay, you guys go back across. Let's, let's do this again. Go back across because I think you need to see something. I've been trying to show you something. Are you seeing it? Let's try it again. Go back across. So they head out. Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray. <laughs> and as he's praying, he's watching them, you know, sail away. And he's also watching the storm roll in. And the storm comes down and begins to overwhelm them again. And this time, Jesus isn't with them. They don't know what to do. They're going to drown again. But Jesus, what does he do? He comes to them, walking across the water. Walking across the water. And Mark tells us, as soon as he got up in the boat, once again, the storm stops. The winds and the waves, they all cease. And the disciples look at each other, and they literally go, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They're literally asking the question about the guy they left everything for, the guy they followed for a year and a half, the guy they've been living with, the guy they've been helping do the teaching, teaching, healing, healing, demons, demons. That guy, they've been with him all along, and now a year and a half into this, they're like, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. What's going on? 
And Mark tells us in Mark 6, he says that they still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. In other words, they asked the question, who is this? They don't understand because Jesus has just done a miracle and they're still trying to figure out the last miracle. They can't even get their heads around this one because they hadn't been able to figure out the last one. Jesus is doing so much crazy, incredible stuff in their lives that they can't even get their heads around it. Man, how many times is Jesus working in your life to show and not tell? How many times is he working in your life to show you who he is? How many doors does he open? How many doors does he close? How many mouths does he shut? How many opportunities does he bring to show who he is? And he looks at the guys. He looks at them, and here's what happens. He gets them back in the boat, and they're trying to figure it all out, can't get their head around it. And in Mark 8, Jesus says, Don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes, don't you? Can you not see it? You have ears, don't you? But you can't hear. Don't you remember anything at all? And then he goes back with them. He reviews with them after this. Not going to show it on the screen, but he reviews. He's like, remember the, remember the miracle with the, with the loaves and the fish? Who, who did that again? Who was that? And they're like, oh, that was you. You, you did that? Yeah, 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 me, I did that. And then after that, it was the storm, right? Remember the storm? And then, and then who was it that said, shut up to the storm? Well, you, you said, shut up to the storm. Yeah, yeah, that was me, that was me. Do you see? Yeah, do you see? Okay, so you didn't, so we did it again. Remember the second loaves thing? That was you too. Okay, and remember the second storm? That, that was you too, yes. <sighs> Jesus actually reviews with them and in verse 21, he says, don't you understand yet? I'm showing you something. I'm showing you something. Mark wants us to see that Jesus is showing us something about himself. How many times have I missed the work of God because I'm distracted by what I think he's not doing? How many times do I look for the sign and wonder over here and Jesus is over here just about doing a juggling act for me to show me who he is? He's all about it and I can't see. I can't hear. How many blessings have I missed out on? While well, he shows and shows and shows who he is in my life. How many times am I praying and begging you, Jesus, just tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. Just tell me. And he's like, dude, I'm showing you, showing you, showing you. I'm right here. And how many times can he point back in my life and say, remember this time when you thought your life was over? Remember this time when you thought your marriage was going to end? Remember this time when you didn't know what to do in your career? And look, who's the consistent one throughout the whole thing? And I got to sit there and go, it, it's you. It, it's you. It's you. It's you. He's showing me time and time again, and I miss it because I don't think like Jesus. 
And it's this point, halfway through Jesus' ministry. Mark chapter 8, 16 chapters right in the middle. Mark does it chronologically, and it's right in the middle that Jesus is finally like, okay, you, don't, you still don't see it. So he takes his boys on a little getaway, a little weekend getaway. They get away from the crazy of the ministry, away from the distractions, away from the busyness of everything, and they sneak off up into the hills. And they go out of Galilee, where Jesus has been doing all of his ministry, way up north into the region of Caesarea Philippi. It's a pagan city where they worship pagan gods. <laughs> Nobody's going to be really excited to see Jesus here. So they go up there, and they're hanging out up there. And that's when Mark shows us that Jesus asks two really important questions. Mark is real clear about, us, uh, about it to us, but I like Matthew's account. Matthew's got a little bit more detail. He's, he's, for, he's for the deeper thinkers of us. So I'm, I'm gonna look at Matthew's account of the same thing. In Matthew 16, Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. He asks his disciples, first question, important question. You need to know the answer to this question. He's like, who do people say that I am? In my head, he's looking around the circle. Come on, what, what are you guys hearing? What are you guys hearing about me? Who do, who do people, what do people think about me? Who do they say I am? And the disciples kind of stumble and stammer. In, in my head, they, they're not looking. Don't, don't, make, don't call on me, don't call on me, <laughs> right? And they respond. They say, well, um, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. I mean, different people say different things, Jesus. Everybody's got their own opinion about Jesus. Everybody's got their own view of Jesus. Some guy. You're some guy. Some man speaking for God. Everybody's got their opinion. Turns out they seem to all be wrong. They're not thinking like Jesus. He's been showing them who he is, but they're not thinking. So Jesus asks the most important question. This is the question that he asks of his disciples. I think he asks of us disciples today. This question is the question you and I cannot escape. And it's the question Jesus would have you answer right now. Here it is. He says, but who do you say I am? In my mind, he's not looking around the circle anymore. In my mind, he locks eyes with Peter right here. Who do you say, disciple? Who do you say I am? What do you really think about me? And Peter, who's known to kind of blurt stuff, has kept it quiet. He hasn't responded during this little conversation. But now he speaks up, and what he says is the most profound thing about Peter. He makes this statement about Jesus that still rings in our ears today. Peter, when asked by Jesus, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah the son of the living God. This is huge. 
Because so far in Mark, nobody has called Jesus this. Nobody has uttered these words. Oh, you see people hoping. You see people believing that maybe finally this is the one. But nobody has called Jesus the Messiah, the deliverer, the promised one. It's never come out of anybody's mouth in the Gospel of Mark until right here at Caesarea Philippi, after a year and a half of following him, Peter has finally seen. He's finally figured it out. And he says, you are the Messiah. But I think that it's this next line that really helps us think like Jesus a little bit more because he's identified Jesus as the Messiah, but he's also identified him with someone else. You're a man sent by God to deliver us. That's what Messiah is. But you are also the son of the living God. You've got different DNA, Jesus. You come from something different. I think this is important because he uses this phrase carefully. He says, you're the son of the living God. This is really important. He says something that we can't quite hear. Because this phrase, the living God, is a unique, ancient Hebrew phrase that the Jewish people would use about God. Now, the Jewish people were very familiar with all of the gods of the world, right? They, all the nations around them worshiped the different gods, the Baals, you know, and whatever. And Israel themselves had fallen into idol worship and Baal worship and all kinds of pagan worship practices themselves all the way back as, as old as Exodus. So they were familiar with all the gods. But this phrase, the living God, this phrase was a unique phrase, and it was reserved solely for one single God, the one true living God. And you would never utter this phrase unless you were talking about God, the God who is the real God. So Moses is talking to the people of Israel, and he's recounting how God spoke, and they respond about hearing from God, and they're shocked in Deuteronomy 5. They're saying, can any living thing hear the voice of, here's its first appearance, the living God from the heart of the fire as we did, and yet survive? All the way back into Moses' day, they recognized that God, the living God, is so powerful, so strong, that his voice can kill you. They recognize this. And when Peter is saying that you're the son of that God, you're the son of the God whose voice can bring destruction to all of us. Later, Joshua is speaking to his people on behalf of God. God has spoken to Joshua to say, lead my people into the promised land and I will go before you. You obey me and do this. The people are all scared. We don't think we can do this. And Joshua says, today, today, you will know that, here it is again, the living God is among you. He will surely drive out, okay, all the bad guys, all the armies of the bad guys. They will all be driven out ahead of you because of the living God. Look, he says, the Ark of the Covenant, which belongs to the Lord of the whole earth, will lead you across the Jordan River. Joshua is telling his people that the living God and only the living God is powerful enough to bring you victory in the face of your worst adversaries. 
That's the living God. The psalmist says this in Psalm 42, as the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God. Here it is again, the living God. When can I go and stand before him? The living God alone is the object of our worship. He's the object of our soul's longing. In Jeremiah we're told that the people who worship idols are stupid and foolish. Yeah, it's like a five-year-old wrote it. People who worship idols are stupid and foolish, but the Lord is the only true God. Here it is again. He is the living God and the everlasting King. The whole earth trembles at his anger, and the nations cannot stand up to his wrath. The living God brings everything to its knees. Nothing can stand in the presence of the living God. King Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king, left Daniel to die in the lion's pit, but had great respect for Daniel because he might, in fact, just worship the real, actual God. So Nebuchadnezzar leaves him in the pit and then goes home to go to bed, but doesn't get a, week, a, a wink of sleep, tosses and turns all night long. And then after a fitful night, he rushes early in the morning back to the lion's pit and he calls in to the pit in Daniel 6. He calls out an anguish, Daniel, servant of, there it is, the living God. Was your God whom you serve so faithfully able to rescue you from the lions? And of course, we know what happened. Yes, the God, the living God, rescued Daniel from the lions. Even pagan kings recognize that the living God is powerful enough to shut the mouths of lions. Even pagan kings recognize that. Do you? Do you? Do you and I recognize it? Do we see that? Because the story of Israel is, is sort of like the story of us. We were designed and created to be like him, made in his image. But yet we all live in rebellion against God. All of us live to undermine the king of kings, to build our own kingdom in betrayal against him. And we're criminals against a holy God, treasonous criminals against him. And you know what? If you're going to rebel against the living God, the only thing you can become is death. If you're going to rebel against the living, right, the only thing you got is death. So we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We are not like the living God. We're dead, and we're under God's judgment. We're all going to hell. But God loved us so much. In our sin, he loved us so much that he decided to send Jesus, this man who had different DNA in him, this man to come here and teach about the kingdom of God and then go to the cross where on that cross all of the sins that you and I commit are placed onto Jesus on the cross and he pays for them. He's the ultimate sacrifice for all of our sins. It's so good. It's like those baskets that have overflowed with goodness. It's so good that his sacrifice for your sins, they don't just cover your past sins. They cover the sins that you haven't even thought about committing yet. That's how good his sacrifice is for you. He died a criminal's death on that cross. 
and went into the grave. And three days later, he rose again with new life to bring you from death to life and to begin to reform you back into the image you were designed to have, to look like him, act like him, talk like him, think like him. No longer living in exile and death, but now living his life. So speaking to the people who are like us in exile, people who think that God has rejected them, doesn't want to have anything to do with them anymore. Hosea is speaking to the children of Israel who were exiled from the Holy Land and now living as captives in Babylon. And he says this, the time will come when Israel's people will be like the sands of the seashore, too many to count. And then at the place where they were told, you're not my people, it will be said, you are the children of the living God. That's who Jesus makes you and me. We may feel rejected. We may feel like God doesn't want nothing to do with us, but you are a child of the living God because Jesus is fully God. In fact, that's the next blank on your page. Jesus is fully God. He's 100% man, but he's also 100% God. And that's the confession that Peter is making on that hillside in Caesarea Philippi. Now, we're halfway through the story. And I'm out of time. So let me summarize really quickly. At that point, when Peter makes this incredible confession, everything about Jesus' ministry takes a major turn. Nothing is the same anymore. Nothing's the same. All the miracles that he's been doing, miracle, 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 they stop. Mark shows us only one more miracle in the entire rest of the last eight chapters of his book. As far as we can tell, in Mark, he stops doing miracles. All the parables, the, the kingdom of God parables, oh, the kingdom of God is like this, you'll need to understand like this. All the parables dry right up. Jesus isn't talking about the kingdom of God anymore. In fact, his whole catchphrase, kingdom of God, stops at Caesarea Philippi and doesn't appear again in the rest of Mark. In fact, from then on, everything Jesus says takes on a different tone and a different feeling he replaces his old catchphrase, kingdom of God, with something new. In fact, the very next thing he says, the thing he says in response to Peter's confession, right there in Caesarea Philippi, he says this in Mark 8, 31, Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things, be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law, that he would be killed but that three days later, he would rise from the dead. Jesus isn't talking about the kingdom anymore. And now his new catchphrase, the new phrase that he says over and over and over for the entire rest of the book of Mark is, son of man, son of man. He says, son of man, over again, the son of man must what? Must suffer and die. Jesus goes from kingdom, kingdom, kingdom to son of man must suffer and die. Son of man must suffer and die. He goes from upbeat, upbeat, upbeat to, this is heavy stuff, man. This is serious. Jesus isn't playing around. In Mark 9, he says, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of enemies, but three days later, he'll rise from the dead. And the disciples didn't understand what he was saying. However, they were afraid to ask him what he meant. They could talk to Jesus about anything at this point, and they did. 
but this is so heavy. It's so weighty. It's such a big turn into what feels dark that they're scared to even talk about it with Jesus. In Mark 10, he says, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed by the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. They'll sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They'll mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip and kill him. But after three days, he'll rise again. What are you talking about? Jesus, we like the part where it was kingdom, kingdom, healing, healing. We like that. Everybody liked that. Why are you doing that anymore? Mark 10, Jesus calls them together and says, you know, the rulers of this world lord it over their people. Officials flaunt their authority over those under them, but among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave of everyone else. For even, here it is, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life. He's saying, I know how everybody else thinks, but you, believer, have got to think Differently, I think like Jesus. Lastly, Mark 14, 21, the Son of Man must die, as the Scriptures declared long ago. So Jesus goes to this focus in on what he's there for. He's been about it all along. I mean, you know, in, in Matthew, we find him at 12 years old. We literally find him. I mean, he went missing for a while at 12 years old. Mary and Joseph panic and go back and find him at the temple. And what does he say? I must be about my, my father's business. I mean, he's always, always about his father's business. I mean, Jesus didn't go to those parties because he wanted to get drunk and have a great time. Am I right? Jesus saw every party as an opportunity to leverage for the kingdom. Jesus didn't hang around all those people just so he could, you know, be near his homeboys. He saw every relationship as an opportunity to leverage for the kingdom. He saw every conversation as an opportunity to tell someone about the kingdom. He saw every place he went as an opportunity to be using that circumstance for the glory of his Father. Jesus wasn't messing around. Everything he did was on purpose. In fact, the next blank, Jesus was laser-focused on his mission of redemption. Our problem is we forget this. We think Jesus came to make us feel better. Or we think Jesus came to give us what we want. I'm working all things out for your good. <laughs> is that what Jesus is talking about? I mean, yes, Jesus brings peace that passes all understanding. Holy Spirit is our comforter. And man, there are blessings indescribable to being in Christ. Every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. But make no mistake... It's not about you. Come on, it's not about you. Jesus is the hero of the story, and he spends all of his ministry, all of his life, pointing to his father. He's always pointing to his father. He's leveraging every conversation, every place he goes as an opportunity to point to his father. Why don't we do this? Because if he's living in you, do you think he's living in you by accident? 
to get drunk and have a good time? Jesus is living in you to continue his purpose. Why else would he be here? He's got something he's doing. And every something he's doing has a name on it. It's the name of your coworkers. It's the name of your classmates, your family members, your neighbors. He is out to leverage every conversation you have, every party you go to, every job assignment, everything you do. He's out to leverage it for the glory of his Father. That's why he's in you. Why don't we think like Jesus? Our problem is we just forget about this. So I've got another message that I really want to encourage you. I preached a message back in September that kind of puts the umbrella over Jesus' big purpose and plan of the, for the entire universe. It's a great message, and it really helps you get a grip on this. And I've got a link to it in your digital notes. If you're following along digitally, uh, you can just tap right to that message. If you're using the paper notes, there's a QR code on the bottom left-hand side of the page. You can just scan right to that message. I really encourage you to use that message to understand better what God is doing in this world and to help you think like Jesus. So at the beginning of this message... I recommended a different message, and now I'm recommending another one with this one in between. It's a message sandwich for you this morning. You're welcome. Because who do you think he is? Who do you think he is? What do you think he's here for? Do you really understand this God-man and his purpose in your life? Who do you think he is? Because I promise you, He knows exactly who you are. Am I right? He's got a book, and he wrote your name in that book before time even began. He knows every step you ever have taken up to this point, and he knows every step you ever will take from here. He knows you better than you know yourself. Scripture tells us he's got the hairs on your head numbered. And Larry Lynch, he's good at subtraction, too. (laughs) Dang, he's subtracting from me also. He knows exactly who you are, and he's got a plan for your life. And it's not a plan to make you happy, healthy, and wealthy. It's a plan to change the dang world, to redeem you and everyone around you back to himself. You have eyes, don't you? You have ears, don't you? Don't you see it yet? Can't you understand? Yet, he's showing you. Let him live through you. Don't you know him? Last blank on your page. Who do you think he is? 